The first scripture reading is a verse from Paul's letter to the Galatians. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The second scripture reading this morning is the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see it face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known." And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We're beginning a new series this morning entitled The Fruit of the Spirit. And the outline for the series comes from that verse you just heard from the book of Galatians, uh, this list that Paul gives in Galatians chapter 5 of these character qualities that should describe a person who has God in their life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so each week we're going to be looking at one or sometimes two of these traits over the next several months. And we're going to be taking them in order, which means today we were talking about love because love leads the list. And it doesn't just happen to lead the list. You know, it's not like it just uh, by chance was the first one that that popped into Paul's mind, and so he wrote it down first. Rather, what we're going to see as we proceed this morning is that love has to come first. It is first and foremost. It is primary in every way. So to see that, we're going to be looking at uh, this, this chapter from the Bible that you just heard read, 1 Corinthians one of the, the more rhetorically beautiful chapters in Scripture. And when you hear it read, you immediately look for the bridesmaids and the, the flower girl. Because it's this, this passage that's typically read at weddings. It's not a passage about married love. It's a passage about personal transformation, which makes it the perfect passage to kick off this series on the fruit of the Spirit and becoming these better people. So we're going to look at it this morning. We're going to look at the the topic of love this morning under three headings. First, defining love. Second, having love. And third, experiencing love. Those will be the three sections to this morning's sermon. Defining love, having love, and experiencing love. And we'll take those one at a time. So first, defining love. You know, if you've been around, the first thing we often do with a topic 
is try to define it. What is it? And our typical method of doing that, or one of our typical methods, is to come at it from behind and to first say, well, what is it not? So that's what I want to do with love. What is love not? The first thing we can say, and this is um, sort of a cliche now, but it's true, so it's still worth mentioning. The first thing is that love is not a feeling. And you all know that. You know That idea has kind of established itself and gained wide acceptance by now, which is good because it is true. Love is not a feeling. But then the, the place that people often go from there is, okay, so love is not a feeling. That means love is a choice. It's a decision. It's an action. And uh, you know, John Mayer had a song on a recent album titled, yeah, I do sometimes listen to John Mayer. I, he's matured quite a bit over the years. But anyway, um, the song was, uh, Love is a Verb. And the, the point of the song is it's not a feeling, it's not a noun, it's a verb. You've got to show me you love me, is what he says in the song. And there's some truth to that idea, too. There's this place where Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. So love is always, it ha- true love has to be accompanied by actions. It has to be backed up by actions. But that's different than equating love itself with an action or a choice. And ultimately, defining love as an action or a decision or a choice is just as off the mark as it is to define it as a feeling. And you see that in this passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Because there's this implied should in the passage. Paul implies, as a Christian, you should be loving. But the question is, how should, how should we take that should? What's, the, what's the, you know, the exact coloring of it? One way you could take it is as a command. You know, he's saying you should be loving, so love. So do this. This is a command. It's a choice. It's an action. So just decide to love. And you can do that for a time. You know, anybody can, can as, a, as an act of will, produce loving actions for a time. You can fake love, essentially. But eventually, that will run out. Eventually, that will fail. Which is interesting, given the last thing that Paul says in this middle section of the passage where he's describing love, which is, love never fails. Love never fails. Which, which means it's not a choice. You know, if, if, if it never fails, well, never failing is not something you can just decide to do. You can't choose to never fail. The fact that it's not a choice is, is underscored by the, the whole way he talks about it, his tense and his grammar throughout this whole middle section of the passage. Because he's, he's not issuing commands. He doesn't say to us, um, love is, you know, to, to be loving, in order to be loving, you need to be patient. Be patient to be loving, or be kind to be loving. He just says, love is patient. Love is kind. He doesn't say in the imperative, don't be envious, or don't keep a record of wrongs. That's how we take it. We take it as this list of of shoulds that he's giving us. That's not what he says. He says in the declarative, love isn't envious. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. He's just, he's not even talking about us, really. He's not telling us to do anything. He's not talking about us at all. He's just talking about this thing, this entity, this force, this power. It is a noun, after all, contra John Mayer in 1 Corinthians 13. It is a noun, and he, he, love is patient, period. Love is kind, period. It's always kind. He even, he even starts tacking on that always uh, modifier toward the end of the list. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. 
In other words, love is perfect. So it's not a decision. Decisions can't be perfect. It's not a feeling. Feelings can't be perfect. So what is it? The reason that question is so hard to answer is because it's the wrong question. The, the right question is not, what is love? The right question is, who is love? Because in 1 Corinthians 13, love is, is not only a noun, it's a proper noun. It's the name of a person. And when I say that, you all know which person I have in mind. Because there's no way, knowing Paul, there's no way that Paul could write these words without thinking of a particular someone. When he writes, uh, love is patient, for example. The literal translation there is love is long-suffering. Love suffers long. Well, there's there's no way Paul is going to write that without thinking about the man who said from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Infinite suffering out of infinite love. Or when he says, love always hopes, it always perseveres. There's no way he could, he could write that without thinking about the man who said from the cross to the thief hanging next to them, today you will be with me in paradise. When he says love does not keep a record of wrongs, he has to be thinking about someone saying, don't hold this against them. Father, forgive them, for I know they know not what they do. And the one we already mentioned, love never failing. When, when he writes, love never fails, he has to be thinking of the man who said from the cross, it is finished. I did what I came to do. I accomplished what I came to accomplish. He's thinking of Christ. This is a passage about Christ. And love is just one of his names because love is who he is. And if it's who he is, then what that means is that it's who God is. In 1 John chapter 4, John writes the most important three-word sentence in the whole Bible. God is love. He is love. Not, not he is loving. Not he has love. He is love. The Bible doesn't talk that way about any of God's other attributes. So it says he's powerful. It doesn't say he is power. It says he's just. It doesn't say he is justice. It says he gets angry. It says he gets jealous. It certainly doesn't say he is anger or he is jealousy. And yet here in John 4, John writes, God is love. God is love. Christ is love. Ultimately, love is not a feeling, but it's not a choice or a decision, and it's not even a power either. Ultimately, love is a person. Because love is none other than Christ himself. That's the first section of the sermon, defining love. That's not what love is, but who love is. That's what Paul is talking about here. This person named love, Jesus Christ. So now let's move on to the second section of the sermon. First, defining love. Secondly, this morning, having love. Because having love seems to be what Paul is concerned with. He says at the, at the, in the first three verses of the passage... He says it three times. He says, if I have power, if I have virtue, if I have talent, if I have knowledge, if I have not love, if I have not love, if I have not love, I am nothing. Nothing is a very absolute term. So having love is a very big deal. And now that we know that that love is Christ, the question shifts a little bit. And and the, the focus is on, well, having love means having Christ. So what does it mean to have Christ. What does it mean to have him? What it doesn't mean is uh, having Christ is not the same thing as believing in him. 
you know, we talk a decent amount at this church about believing in Jesus, about coming to grips with the fact that he really was and is God in the flesh. And the reason we spend time with that is because it's this initial hurdle that a lot of people have to get over, especially in New York, of, of coming to realize, well, wait a minute, this isn't a fairy tale, this is real. But once you get over that hurdle, I don't mean to suggest to you at all by talking about believing in Jesus so often. I don't mean to suggest that believing in him is the whole ballgame. Because ultimately, the thing that makes you a Christian, the thing that makes you a true son or daughter of God, is not believing in Christ. It's having him. The terminology that the New Testament uses is being united with Christ, him being in you, you being in him. That's what really makes you a son or daughter of God. And what does that mean to have Christ, to be united to Christ like that? Well, it means a number of things, but for our purposes this morning, it means one thing in particular. If Christ is love, having him means having love, more specifically having his love, more specifically still having his love for you being able to put your hands on it, not just knowing about it, but experiencing it on a very deep, personal level, feeling it, having it wash over you, coming to see the reality that this whole passage is about you and him, that he's patient toward you, that he's kind toward you, that he always protects you, that he'll never fail you, experiencing that. And Paul's argument, in some ways you could actually call this the thesis of the whole Bible, is that if you do experience that, it will change your behaviors in a way that no amount of trying or deciding or choosing ever could because you're transformed. So the the first three or four minutes of this second section have been very abstract and theoretical and conceptual. So what I want to do now is illustrate these points that we've been talking about for the last several minutes with a story. So over uh, over Christmas break uh, at our house, we were just around the house one morning, and Anna, our four-year-old, was in a really bad mood, really bad mood, just kind of going around stomping, stinking up the whole house. You know when a family member does that, they just kind of stink up the whole house. Uh, unfortunately, it, at our house, the culprit far too often is me, um, but on this particular morning, it was Anna. And it had kind of been building for a while, but it came to a head when Brittany asked her to fold her clothes and put away her clothes, which is one of her routine chores. And she just lost it, you know, just melted down, throws herself on the floor crying. I always have to put away my clothes. And, um, so I'm just ignoring her, you know, which is what I usually do when this happens, and because who knows how long this is going to go on for. So I'm ignoring her, and I don't even notice that eventually she picks herself up off the floor. She drags herself over the couch. And the next thing I hear is, I hate it when you lie to me. You said there were a few clothes. There are a lot of clothes. <laughs> And we didn't say anything. And the next thing she says is, I always have to do everything around this house. You never do anything. I don't know if you've ever, uh, if your parent had your child say that to you, but if you have, you know, it's a pretty special feeling. 
So I said to Anna, I said, you know, Anna, you have a really bad attitude. And uh, it's sort of getting all over the rest of us. And we don't really want to be around it. We don't want to really want to listen to this. So why don't you go into your room and uh, just come out when you're feeling better. I might not have said it quite that nicely, but that was the, that was the gist of it. So she stomps off and into her room and slams the door. And a couple of minutes later, I start to feel bad for her. And so I go in there and I sit down next to her and I say, Anna, I just want you to know that even though you're not very fun to be around when you have a bad attitude, I still love you even when you have a bad attitude. And she says, I already know that. Why do you always tell me that? So I, uh, I thought, well, I'm going to have to try a different angle. And I said, well, you know, even though you're not very fun to be around when you're in a, in a bad mood and you have a bad attitude, sometimes, because I love you so much, I still want to be around you anyway. So would it be okay if I sat in here with you and brushed your hair? So she nods. She says, okay. So I start brushing her hair. And uh, after a few minutes, we start chatting about, I don't know what, her friends at school, and she starts warming up. You know, Dad, guess what? Dad, did, did you know this? And, uh, you know, about 15 minutes go by. And I'm done brushing her hair, and, and I say, Hey, Anna, why don't you go uh, fold your clothes and put them away? And she says, Okay. And she jumps up and does it with a smile on her face in about two minutes. So... There are a number of observations I want to make about the story. The first is that it makes me sound like a way better father than I actually am. Um, you know, this is the, the highlight reel, and if you watch the tape of the whole season, it tells you a, a very different story. So I, I feel guilty about telling it because it, it makes me look better than I am. The second observation is just it's not necessarily a realistic parenting strategy. You know, sometimes you just need your kids to do what they're supposed to do. You don't have 15 minutes Plus, you don't necessarily want to reward yelling with one-on-one time every time. So I'm not even putting this out there as a model for parenting. In other words, there are several good reasons not to tell this story at all. Um, The reason I wanted to tell it anyway is because it is such a perfect illustration of these two principles that are absolutely key in understanding how our relationship with God works and how personal transformation works. So the first principle is, it's not what you know it's what you experience. You know, think back. I, I go in there, and the first thing I tried to do was disseminate knowledge. And I just want you to know that I still love you. And her response to that is not to be comforted, but to be annoyed. I already know that. Why do you always tell me that? And it's the same way with our relationship with God. It's not knowing it. Knowing it doesn't matter. I've told you very few times directly from up here in the last six years that God loves you. And the reason I don't say it in those words is because of the times that I've heard a preacher say, God loves you no matter what. Don't forget, God loves you. And my response is to think, I already know that. Why do you always tell me that? To be annoyed, not comforted. So it's not what you know. Rather, it's what you experience. Because when she experienced my love, when she felt me touching her, when I spent time with her, when I wanted to be around her, even when she had behaved Badly, then that was transformative. And so that takes us to the second principle, which is 
the only way to become the best version of yourself is to have these profound, personal, repeated experiences of the love of your father. She changed. She was a different person. She was night and day, two different people. She didn't decide to change. She didn't resolve to change. She didn't say, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a better person. I'm just going to do my duty and do what I'm supposed to do in our house. Rather, she just changed without even trying because she bathed for a few minutes in the love of her father. And that's exactly how it is with us and God. It's this experience, this profound experience of really coming to know, not on a head level, but on a heart level, on an emotional level, on a spiritual level, that you're loved. And and bathing in that love that changes you, that, that transforms you. That's what Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about is you get filled up. Someone else is pouring into you, and you're so filled up that it just kind of spills out of you. There's a song about this that I like, uh, sung to God, the words of which go, you take a cup and you fill it up and you keep on filling till it all comes spilling down the sides. That's what you do in my life. Never mind moderation, you exceed my expectations. I've never loved you more for you have never loved me less than the day before or the day before. And the woman uh, singing that song, she's not singing about something she heard about. She's singing about something she's experienced. This is something that's very real to her. That's what it means to have love. Having love is having Christ. And having Christ means experiencing, not just knowing about, but experiencing his love for you. That's the second section of the sermon. It takes us to the last thing we need to talk about today, which is that experience peace. Third and finally this morning, the last section is experiencing love. And the, the question I want us to ask in this last section is, okay, well, how? What does that look like? You know, you say it's not about knowing, it's about experiencing. You say in order to become the best version of myself, I need to experience the love of, of my father. But let's say I have knowledge and not experience. How do you move from knowledge to experience? What does that look like? What's involved? What are the steps there? And uh, the answer I have, I'm not terribly excited about because it's an answer I've given you before. Uh, It's an answer you've heard other people say before. It's the standard answer, but in this case, the standard answer isn't one that I can improve upon. I I have nothing new or exciting to say because it's the right answer. And the standard answer is the most important way to experience this sort of love from God is through time alone spent with him, through time alone with him. Now, there are other ways. So uh, relationships, for example. Uh, Relationships with others in the church, community groups, you can experience the love of God through the love of other people. Or corporate worship, coming here on Sunday mornings and worshiping, singing, hearing the scriptures read, hearing the word of God Proclaimed. Many of you have, from time to time, had these very real experiences, personal experiences, of God's love sitting here right in this room. But if you think of, of experiencing God's love as a three-legged stool, so one leg is this community piece and relationships, community groups. The other leg is corporate worship, Sunday mornings. And a lot of you have the first two legs, but you're missing this third leg, which is time alone spent with him. And in some ways, it's the most important. You know, think back to me and Anna 
It's that time alone together where this foundation of love is built. Or think about the life of Christ, for that matter. Why is he always going off by himself, trying to get alone to pray? It's not because he's this saint. It's not because he's so disciplined. It's because he's needy. He's emotionally and spiritually needy. He's hungry. He's thirsty. And he wants to get filled up by this love from his father that he can't get from anyone or from anywhere else. That's what it's about. And and the reason I hate that this is the answer is because I know it's just, it will be discouraging to many of you. I know that for many of you, you've tried this before. Maybe you've, even every January, you know, you try and knew that I'm gonna I'm gonna carve out more time this year to to spend time with God alone, whether that be reading the Bible or praying or times in worship and singing with music. You say, I'm going to do it this year. And you've tried this before, and it hasn't worked for you. I mean, that literally, it hasn't worked. Like, you do it, and you just don't feel anything. And so what's the point? And you eventually give up. And my only word to you this morning is that just you can't give up. You have to keep trying. You have to keep trying different things. So there are, you know, some key elements. Scripture, as I said, prayer, music, those are kind of the the three uh, God-ordained elements for this happening. But the mix of them can be any which way. And you have to keep figuring out, keep trying things until you figure out what works for you. Maybe it's you know taking a walk and praying in the park. Maybe it is listening to music and, and worshiping. Maybe it's reading certain portions of Scripture. I don't know what it'll be for you, but you have to keep trying until you find it. For me, I've uh, shared with you before that uh, the the most reliable way, the most consistent way that I've had these experiences of God's love in the past is through scripture set to music. So as we close, or as we head toward a close, I want to share with you an experience I had recently, not because this is normative, not because this is the way it's supposed to happen or has to happen, but just because I feel like what we're talking about is a little bit abstract, and I want to make it more concrete with a specific example. So this was um, about a year ago, just under a year ago, Actually, I, it was actually so meaningful to me that I wrote down the date. So I went and looked it up this week, week and it was February 23rd, Monday, February 23rd of last year at 9.20 a.m. I was uh, sitting in my office, had headphones on, was listening to worship music and you know, praying, focusing on the words. And this song came on, which is uh, Psalm 103, set to... Music. So the words of the song are the same as the, the words of the psalm. It says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. The Lord is good to us. He has compassion on all that he has made. And as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. So I've heard this passage dozens of times. I've heard this song, this exact recording many times. But for some reason, this time, this time when I'm listening to it, and it gets to that line about as far as the east is from the west, for some reason this time, I felt like that idea, like those words were exploding in my chest. My chest was burning, and I couldn't breathe. I'm crying. My whole body is tingling. The only words I can think of are four letters long. And it's euphoric. It's, it's accompanied by this deep ecstasy and this deep joy and just this absolute 
astonishment and disbelief that this is who God is. This is what he's really like. This is what he really does. This is how he really feels toward me. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He is rich in love. And as far as the east is from the west, that's how far. That's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. And then the only remaining line of the song is... uh, Praise the Lord, oh my soul, praise the Lord. Which, you know, outside of a personal experience of God's love, that's like religious boilerplate, you know? I mean, what does that even mean? It sounds very silly. Praise the Lord, oh my soul, praise the Lord. But for me, given my experience, those were the most profound words that you could possibly speak at that moment. There was nothing I could have felt more deeply than those words. And so, you know, in response to that, you say, well, that's great for you. I'm glad you had that That weird euphoric experience you know I'm very happy for you thank you for sharing uh, because the only thing more annoying than having somebody tell you that God loves you is having somebody talk about an experience of God's love that they've had that you can't relate to the other thing you might say in response to it is you know why does it why does that matter you know what, what's the point of an experience like that what's the purpose of an experience like that. Because, you know, it's, it sounds like it felt really good. It was this high, fine, but there's, you, know, you can get that same experience from all sorts of different drugs. So why is, why is this something worth seeking? I think that's a very legitimate question. Because how long did this feeling last? You know, five minutes? Ten minutes? So why does it matter? And the answer is, it matters because of what we've been saying. And experience of love changes you. And that's what we're talking about with me and Anna. This experience of love, even though it was of short duration, changed her. As we close, now we're, now we're really heading toward a close, uh, I want to switch the metaphor. We've been talking about this in terms of a uh, relationship between a father and a child, which is one of the two main metaphors that God uses to talk about his relationship with us. But now I want to change over because there, there are two. There are twin metaphors he uses. The first is the relationship between a father and a child. But the second metaphor he uses is the relationship between a husband and a wife. So if you think about uh, in the context of married love, if you think about having sex, actually having sex, the, this is an activity of very limited duration. You know, It lasts anywhere between an hour and five minutes. And if you think about it in the context of a marriage as a whole, the total amount of time you're married to someone, this is easily less than 1% of your marriage in terms of time. Which is why you have some people who kind of view it as like, well, sex is like dessert. You know, it's like this fun, sweet thing that's not really essential, but it's nice to have. It's an add-on. It's a perk. If everything's going well, it's icing on the cake. But really, what marriage is about is it's about life partnership. It's about parenting together. It's about uh, you know supporting each other in each other's careers. It's about mutual respect. It's about friendship. That's what marriage really is. And that view could not be more wrong. Sex is is not dessert. It's not an extra. It's not a perk. It's not icing on the cake. Rather. It is essential. 
It is basic. It is foundational. It's the main course. It's meat and potatoes. And the reason for that is because sex, when it goes right, and often goes wrong, but, but when it goes right, sex is a profound experience of love, of embrace, of acceptance, of affirmation. And the whole point of this morning is an experience of love changes everything. It changes everything. So in the context of marriage, it changes you. It also can change your marriage. This is why some marriage therapists now are totally turning the tables. And instead of saying, well, let's sort out all your issues, and then once you do that, you can graduate into having sex, now some of them are saying, look, if I can just get you to start having sex again, then all of your issues will straighten themselves out over time. And that's sort of what we're talking about here with us and God and love. You can try and you can try and you can try to straighten out your issues as a person, to become more loving, to become more gentle, to become more kind, to become more patient. And you can resolve to do those things. Or you can just have an experience, have repeated experiences of the love of your father and watch your issues straighten themselves out. Now, not overnight. That's not the claim. You know, I've shared with you about these experiences of God's love that I've had. Well, guess what? I'm not nearly as loving as a person as I should be still. But that's not really the question. The question isn't, am I as loving as I should be? The question is, am I more loving than I used to be? Am I on the right trajectory? And I'd like to think that, by God's grace, the answer to that is yes. Not because of my efforts at moral reform, not because I've tried so hard to be this better person, but rather because of these slow, almost imperceptible at first, but nevertheless deep and real and permanent changes that have occurred within me as I have experienced and received love. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for you in 2016 to not just know about, but to experience the love of your Father. Let's pray. God, I ask that even as we sit and stand here now, that you would come and that you would give some of those who are gathered here this morning a taste of this love, even right now as I'm praying. I pray this in faith. I pray this knowing that you'll answer, that you would impress upon the hearts of some of those seated here in this moment your love for them and they would feel it right now in a way that they've never felt it before. I ask that this step, this all-important step we know we have to take of actually creating space for you to express your love for us, of spending time alone with you, I ask that you would give us an appetite for it. I ask that uh, as, as some of those in this room take that step this next week or the following week, I, I pray you give them something, some experience, however small, that lets them know that they're on the right track and they should keep going to persist through whatever dry spells may come, this taste of your love for them. We ask that as we experience this as individuals and as a church, 
as we come over the next year to understand your love for us on a deeper and more experiential level. We do ask that it would change us, that it wouldn't just be this high and this, this great experience, but that it would be something that transforms us and turns us into better people in a way that no amount of trying ever could. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, love himself. Amen.